Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I spent a little time during the break making this my desk. So we've got some of my flyers here, my cookie, the computers, just some of the personal items to make it my desk. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I don't um, speak outside of Redeemer very often, but um, I had heard first about this church and what Christ Community was doing from David four years ago or so. And so you'd be interested to know that whenever I get a call and somebody says, well, how do we start a faith and work ministry? I said, call, call this church. They're doing something differently than it, but um, in a way that I really admire. So I had not even been here and I'd been speaking far and wide about um, to churches all over the world, really, about what you were doing here. So I get to be here in person and meet you and um, talk to you today. And that's a great, that's a great pleasure. So thank you. I have, I wish that I had David Miller as my guide when I started doing this ministry six years ago. He got a great opening talk this morning, and when his book came out a couple years ago, I read through it eagerly and found some frameworks in there that I realized were very helpful in um, explaining why we do what we do and also helping my leaders understand a broad way to approach um, this kind of ministry. So it's really fun to follow him and talk about the four um, integration spheres that um, he references in his book and that he's just shared with you. And I'm going to address that um, as we talk today. But the title of my talk is, But the Church Has No Relevance to My Work. And I think what basically you've gotten from David the, you know, put these two things together and then you're sort of left with, so what's the relevance of my faith? I and mean, what is that intersection? And um, I'm going to tell you a little bit, about, talk a little bit about that topic. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own story and how I um, came to this position at Redeemer. And then I'm going to talk about Redeemer's ministry in, in particular um, interesting note, um, one of the things I'm going to talk about and show a video later on is um, about our Entrepreneurs Program. It's a, it's a fun, very innovative program we've got going in the church. And each year, we, this is the third year, we're doing a business plan competition. We have many applicants. And last year, one of our awards was to a young woman who was ma- doing some manufacturing out of her home in Brooklyn. And we gave her... A $20,000 grant and so a lot of consulting this year. And she's just opened full-time manufacturing in a facility about an hour west of here in Kansas. Moved to an area in your backyard in order to be able to continue to grow that um, entrepreneurial venture with, based on Christian principles. So it's kind of a cool connection that way as well. Okay, so this myth, the church has no relevance to my work. I want to talk about two aspects of it. One is that it's based on bad theology, and the second is that it's based on bad experience. So theology point number one, so many people that I talk to have a beam-me-up Scotty mentality of their faith, sort of me and God are okay, don't bother me, when I die I'm going up there anyway, and so it doesn't really matter what happens here or all that much what I do here. So obviously that's a theology that doesn't um, lend itself to your work matters to God or 
God actually has you here for a purpose through your work. And um, so we're working hard to address these theology inaccuracies. Second one, there's nothing valuable the Bible has to say about my work. I'm better off just discussing it with my business school colleagues or my guild colleagues or people who are in the trade that I'm in. And um, as David points out in his book, I think that money is the number two often um, repeated topic in the Bible from beginning to end. And certainly he's got many, many examples um, where Jesus is referring in particular to the work. Number three, I know I'm supposed to evangelize at my workplace, but I don't have the gift of evangelism. Most, I'd say 70% of the young people that I get um, basically know they're supposed to and have huge guilt over the fact that they don't and their rationalization is they don't have that gift. So um, I really try to encourage them not to limit their perspective of faith and work to that, that thing. Fourth, I pray about things at work like making a sale, getting a promotion, and God never answers my prayers. So that's sort of the pray, God, you help me, that's the job here. I do stuff, you help me make it better. Um, and fifth, I tithe. And if the church wants to mess around in areas that it doesn't belong, I won't have as much money to tithe to them. <laughs> and, and, and certainly, I think whether we would say those words out loud or not, a lot of us who are um, struggling ethical issues in our work would say, oh man, this one really could have some economic consequences. Sec so that's bad theology areas. Um, secondly, bad experience areas. Um, I hear in New York all the time the church doesn't value what I do, particularly hear it from artists, but I also hear it from people with money. They only want me for my money. It's very, it's interesting. One of our critiques of the modern-day contemporary work-a-day world is it's very utilitarian. It's not about people. It's about what you can get from each other, the cost-benefit. But interestingly, I hear from congregants often that what they feel about their church is also, it's a very utilitarian, cost-benefit kind of an exchange. So bad experience. The church only values my work if they're getting something from it. I hear it from web developers, by the way. Do we have any web developers here? They are the latest exploited work category. Every nonprofit wants their web work for free. Uh, poor web developers. Three, the worldview of the church is so insulated, the clergy don't get it if I talk about anything real or important at my work. And four, if I let on that I was a Christian at my work, if I did decompartmentalize, I would be totally ostracized. A little bit about our congregation. Um, we started about the time that this church started. In, we started in 1989. Um, I was not a Christian at the time. I had a, um, a woman who worked for me that nagged me till I finally went and attended, and then God nagged me from that point on. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's grown rather quickly, um, really focused on drawing in people that weren't Christians. Um, and it's now about 5,000. Um, we don't have a building, so I'm very, very covetous of your beautiful um, building and landscape here. We sort of carry everything into a rented facility on Sunday and pack it out. Uh, we meet in three different worship locations in five different services. Our average age is 30, and it's 70% single. It's a pretty unusual diag um, 
demographic. Um, so my ministry is contextualized specifically for that population. I often only have, our, our average turnover is four years. 100% of the church turns over every four years. So um, my age demographic and my longevity demographic definitely skew all those that leave after one year. Um, and this year, actually, with the economy doing what it's doing, it may, we may lose a lot of people um, moving back to their hometowns. But anyway, counterpoints to that, that myth are the Bible is totally about work. God works through the church. And I want to talk about this, particularly in this context. I've shaped our ministry to be very focused on how the gospel actually works through us as a church, as a people um, of God together, not just in isolation as individuals in our workplace. And I'll talk quite a bit about why that's been important and... um, and how that's important to us. And third, the missionalness of this. Um, The first century churches really saved the cities of the Roman Empire, and I don't know how many of you have read a wonderful book by Rodney Stark that sort of um, traces the the impact and the growth of uh, Christianity and the church in particular on civilization. But he really points to the bodies of... um, of the church staying in cities during the times of the plague, at times of downturn, times of hardship. And Redeemer, in particular, has tried to be a church. When we started, there were um, very few churches with anybody attending them, lots of beautiful buildings, but no one in them. In New York City, people told our pastor, Tim Keller, that it would never fly in New York because Christians weren't going to live in the cities. And we actually probably get a letter a week from a Christian somewhere else in the country saying, um, you need to move out. God is going to punish the cities. That's, where, that's, that's the worst place for you to be as a Christian, and you will, be, you will go too just by virtue of living there. And our position has obviously been the exact opposite. God needs his people in the cities, and um, there's, there's a huge way we can be like the Roman church was as influences, especially in the hard places. Now, the last, um, the last decade has been a period of huge growth and improvement in New York City. So Christians from other parts of the country actually let their kids move to New York now after college. We get them, all of them. A little bit of, so our basic premise is God wants to um, do a thorough renewal of our mind and heart through the gospel. He wants to do it individually. He wants to do it in our communities as a church, and he wants our communities to then be serving in that world at large. So that's been sort of the way we've, sh- we've shaped, or the basic way we've shaped our ministry. A little bit of my story. Um, I became a Christian at Redeemer. I was um, an adamant, um, I'd been inoculated against church through my, my childhood experiences, so um, I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, my brother's became converted in college, and two of them went off and became missionaries. So as I was wrestling for about three years of all the millions of things I was going to have to give up, and I was doing that net balance of, all right, this carrot and heaven thing versus all these really good things I had on earth, um, one of the huge ones was 
you know, my, my career, I'd invested in business school, I'd, in, I'd accomplished some things, and it seemed like a, a huge price that God wanted for me to give my whole life. Um, so I was doing that with, um, on faith, I guess is the right way to say it. Um, like, God, don't make it too bad. And, um, and it, it was very tangible to me that he might, like, do this missionary thing because I'm seeing my lawyer brother become a missionary, my finance brother become a missionary. And I was headed to Uganda to visit my brother for the first time. I thought, that's when he's going to get me. <laughs> and so I was praying with real, you know, this final, all right, God, I'm, 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 I'm yours. All right. And very, like, within weeks of that, um, I was, I was an ex- on the management team of a... 125-person technology company. And my boss called me in the office one Friday morning and said, "Um, I have some scary and bad news. I found out last night I have a brain tumor. Would you take over the company? And so this was not something I was expecting. And apart from my obvious concern for him, I thought, wow, Lord, I guess you're really calling me into business. I mean... Here I was. I was willing I'm, to... I, had, I canceled my trip to Uganda. Um, I, I was willing to go over there and let you get me. And, and you just sort of did a two-by-four on my head here and said, no, I want you in business. And so um, as a business person, I'd had great, great, phenomenal teaching from the pulpit. But nonetheless, my pastor was not able to tell me exactly what this was going to look like as a president of a company as a Christian, um, especially as a brand new Christian who had not yet decided to stop swearing. And so I had some really, some of the real basic things to walk through and was sort of looking around at the church going, so where are you now? I mean, you've, you've talked about how distinctive you want us to be out there. Um, you want your people out there in positions of leadership in the institutions of our culture but what do you want me to do next and there was no no class for first time company presidents on how to be a distinctive christian and the next 10 years was very um you know at one on the one hand i felt the call hugely because of the timing and the juxtaposition i thought there's no question God wants me to do this differently but it was a slow process of trying to build a little bit more in especially as many all of you know in the demands of a um, of a busy work life it's hard enough to do to maintain your faith let alone like build it from scratch so um, I found an incredible seminary in Vancouver Canada called Regent College that actually caters classes to people who have working lives and small vacations. So they do one- and two-week classes, and I was able to take vacation time and jet up there and try to get some um, heavy-duty doses of what does it mean to really... uh, How do I understand God better? How do I understand the Bible better? I moved to California for work and um, became, uh, as David mentioned, uh, ran two consecutive companies out there. The last one, um, I was really looking for a more balanced life. I, I joined as the COO, thinking the CEO thing was getting a little bit stressful, and I really couldn't possibly be called to this. And um, three months in, I um, didn't think I could work for this founder. 
Um, we just had too many different ways of working. So I, went, I decided to resign. And I went in on a Monday morning to resign. And he said, you can't resign because I resign first. You know, there's a lot of high levels of maturity in Silicon Valley <laughs> management teams. <laughs> and so I, you know, I just sort of sat there. He didn't take the statement back. And um, I said, well, can we talk about this? Well, there's nothing to say. I've resigned. You can't say anything to me. And so I went back to my office and said, well, when you want to talk, that's where I'll be. And I got a call from the head of the board a couple hours later saying, we're accepting his resignation. We want you to take over. And so that was sort of like a, 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 a real, like, God, what can you possibly be doing here? And um, a month later, the market started to fall apart. And so that company actually ended up going bust. So here I'm wrestling with what does this calling mean? You call us to failure? What could this possibly be? And so I decided, uh, it was about 18 months later, um, after a really... Um, some ways rewarding, but stressful um, 18 months. Um, I decided I'd take a little sabbatical, and at that point, Redeemer called, and they'd sort of been tracking my life out there, and said, listen, would you consider coming to work for us? We'd really like to start a ministry in this area. And I was like, no way. I mean, that's... But I felt like God really got me when I became a Christian there, and it had changed my life, so... If any place that I would want to give back to, it would be there. Um, and two, I'd been struggling with this for 10 years, growing in little tiny pieces, but really not finding a lot of structured support in the church. So sometimes when you complain a lot, <laughs> God says, you, I want you. Um, and, then, and then three, I thought, well, maybe my sort of entrepreneurial background will help me be able to do this. And it has been entrepreneurial. Um, primary characteristics of our ministry at Redeemer, and as I said, I had a blank piece of paper. The church had said, this is important to us. We really want to make it one of our, pri- our primary way of ministering to the city. We believe if God called the people in our church, to their profession, in an institution in this city, in a profession in the city, that's where he's going to use them, and that's how the culture is going to be transformed and shaped. So they really made us the, the church serving the customer, which was the city. And so I got a great setup, but no real, like, okay, now what do we do? So um, a couple sort of characteristics that um, I put in place early on. One is that we would be very theology-focused, um, that I had highly educated people, and they were certainly capable of learning um, theology. And often I would hear, well, those you know, stupid pastors, they don't understand our language. And I thought, you stupid Christians, you don't understand their language, and it's your language, so how do we really go much, much deeper theologically? So that's been a, a foundation. Um, two, that it would be entrepreneurial. In our early days of the church, as a startup, they even let new Christians like me teach classes or start groups. Um, we're going to have to really trust a lot of people that aren't that equipped to start things and equip them on the job, on the job training kind of thing. So it's, it, we, we approached it from the standpoint of being very lay-led. Thirdly, we would be very missional. 
Um, I'd say the first people that... Um, I, I did have unpen totally pent-up demand for this. I had emails before I even sold my house in California. It was like, we, we are ready for this. We are ready for you to be here. How can I help? Which, you know, is a... No one does that in business. That was an amazing thing. Um, so, so I felt like... Um, there were definitely people responding with their needs, but a lot of them were, um, I really need your help to cope. Um, nobody else in my, I've never met another Christian in my field. I've never met another Christian in the environment where I work. And early on we said we, we want to be able to meet that need, but we sort of to go to David's um, uh, spheres here. That was sort of in the enrichment sphere and we really wanted to go to some of the more missional spheres as well and not just have it be a, how can you help me but how can we how can we serve the city um, and really participate in God's redemptive mission in the city so that's been part of our language from the beginning to renew the world our society our culture Fourth, which is very controversial and it's an experiment still in progress, no results yet, um, is that the church is the laboratory where we practice God's way of doing things so that we can go into the world better equipped. One of the first things that I, that happened was I tried to have every group that was um, being started be led by four people. And there were almost always big fights between those four people. And so I try this approach of saying, all right, so if the gospel's really true, it's going to make us better leaders together. Um, most of the people were comfortable leading a fellowship group by themselves where there was just, there was no real challenge to their leadership. And in this context of four working together, we had all kinds of challenges. So we, we sort of birthed this concept that leading at Redeemer, leading in this ministry, was going to be the laboratory where we learned and practiced what we knew about Christian leadership so that when we went out there, we would have a little bit of, um, of experience, not just talking about it, but uh, feedback. That's been the hardest thing. Nobody really, really wants to admit they're a sinner, except in the broad term, but in a specific of how you behaved in this meeting. Don't you dare tell me that I spoke out of turn. They're much more willing to point out what everyone else did wrong in the meeting or to ask for forgiveness or extend grace. So it's been really an interesting um, crucible of faith and gospel renewal. And I, a couple of years into this approach, I think some of the leaders are really starting to say, hey, that, this is what's really caused me to grow um, at Redeemer and through this church. Um, Learning how to serve, even when we're humiliated, undervalued, and mocked. Um, certainly, even in the context of the church, that happens. Um, this ministry opens up some of our sin areas that, um, that other church activities don't. And one of them is that senior-level people really don't like to mix with the lower-level people. Or, um, you know, you just sort of get this... People go into a room of, say, all lawyers... And they immediately go, all right, partner, partner, loser, partner, loser, loser, loser. And they sort of weigh it out. And it's, it's really, I'm finding it really gets to some core heart issues about where your identity is. It's okay, well, I'll be the same as we're sitting here worshiping and singing. That, I mean, that's been hard enough. Give me a lot of points for getting past that. But now we're in my work sphere, and I just want to make sure you know my identity in that is higher than some of the other people in this room. So it's been fodder for huge, 
I mean, obviously some people don't stick around for the opportunity of growth. But for those who will, it's been fodder for a huge chance to look at the idols in our own hearts and where we place our identity in, in things other than as people of Christ. So the laboratory has been, was the fourth of our guiding principles. Um, five, um, I love a quote by a man named Jack Miller that is, we are more sinful than we ever dared believe and more loved than we ever dared hope. And I'm hoping as I work with all these leaders that they will see how totally qualified they are. They're most educated people in the world as most of you in your churches here, um, totally qualified to leave, given every privilege, every benefit, and yet totally unqualified in terms of our, our rightness with Christ. And so that, that sort of awareness of our sin and our um, privilege at the same time is something I'm really trying to help our leaders go into this with. It's, we started it right off the bat. We started with panel discussions where we'd bring, say, all advertisers together and just it didn't really matter what topic any topic but usually it would be like the ethical areas of advertising should you should you support advertising of cigarettes or uh, should you advertise with sex as a prominent tool of advertising or we had a big fight over guns once at one of the one of the programs you know good or bad um, but that's not, you know, the topic or the answer to that wasn't really the point. The point was we asked everyone who spoke, and they were all speakers from within the congregation, to tell one area where something in their work made them, it was really the crucible God was learning to teach them how deficient they were in their faith. And it was a learning experience, sort of a humbling learning experience. And then other experiences of where, you, where God blessed you. We were really trying to avoid it being a ministry of just, well, I don't know about you guys, but I prayed and now I'm successful. But no, I met a struggle and I failed. I'm, I'm as much of a, of a, have as difficult a time as any other human being since Adam in this. And how can we share truthfully and honestly um, our, our failures and God's redemption of those failures as much as we, we share our blessings so that's number five, been a key. And then six, which has been rather controversial. Um, we've been trying to not just be a teaching ministry, teaching, listening ministry, but a doing ministry. And I alluded to that in the, in the way we're using leadership as a laboratory. But also, how can we put people into action? Um, and, you know, not with a, with a staff paid person doing it, but how can we help the volunteer leaders put people into action? And I'll talk about um, how we've done that from a structure perspective. So, and then, so I'm going to do the structure, then I'm going to go into how it sort of fits with David's um, four E's and hopefully not run past my time here. Structurally, we're, we have a teaching aspect where we have classes and um, retreats and some growing number of workshops. There's five, five different aspects. Um, the second is these vocation groups. Basically, if I can get four people who want to start one and lead it, we'll start it. So we've got IT, we've got lawyers, we've got financial services, healthcare, education, um, several in the arts, film, dance, um, film, dance, and um, acting, and um, entrepreneurs. There's a total of about 12 active groups at the moment. So vocation groups are the second, and about 70 leaders involved in those. So my job is primarily um, 
growing and nurturing those leaders in, in that second area. In the third area, it's um, arts. About 20% of the congregation are artists and not necessarily being paid as artists, sometimes being paid at Starbucks and um, working as artists. They may be some of your children. Um, and so the arts ministry areas, we really hope that over the next 10 years we will build the level of the quality of the art sufficiently to have a cultural center that comes from a Christian worldview that's up and running and operating as part of the mainstream cultural um, milieu of um, New York City. We won't do it if we don't have a level that's competitive there, but we're doing things right now. Last night I missed the launch of an art juried art exhibit in our offices and um, we've, we've launched two theater companies um, very fledgling stages but trying to get that going so the third area is arts ministries fourth area is entrepreneurship and I'm going to show a video about that Basically, some of our congregations going to move their way through existing organizations and be able to be change agents. But often, and I'm a, I'm a high-tech person, I watched Apple Computer take on IBM. Um, oftentimes, cultural change happens when a startup company shakes the status quo from the outside and the you know, gets enough market share that a mainstream business has to pay attention to it. So we're, we're actually aggressively seeking good entrepreneurial ideas and teaching prospective leaders of new ventures how to, what it means to have a gospel-centered venture. And, and we'll show you some of that. So that's, that's part number four. And then five, we really haven't gotten very far off the ground, and that's we, we've dubbed it Think Tank. We're looking for thinkers in each vocational area who have a Christian worldview to be able to come in and talk about, well, some current issues of our day, like it would be really great right now if I had that going in financial services. What did go wrong from a, from a deep perspective, not just a pointing fingers of it was them, it was them, um, but a deep perspective and how can it be rebuilt in a way that's more God-honoring and um, serves the common good more broadly. Um, we have some inroads in this think tank area, but um, we're not very far. That's, that's still in the future plan. So that's our, our sort of five-part structure to um, this ministry at Redeemer. I would also like to say about the structure, I think it's gotten about a quarter of the church participates, a quarter of the 5,000, in something to do with faith and work every year for the last two years. So it's getting some pretty broad penetration. Um, Those who don't have, um, you know, it it could be travel reasons or um, family and, and other obligations, um, but we, we feel like the church as a whole is, is very aware of what's going on and um, in, in turn feels valued by this. Um, and I think one of the reasons is it's not buried underneath adults, men, um, you know, five tiers down in the church organizational structure. It's one of our five missional fronts as a church. So um, that's been really helpful. So connecting to David's four E's, I found them extremely practical. Um, one of the problems in having the groups is that everybody, if we had a, you know, said, all right, calling all lawyers, and you poll the lawyers, they would each have a reason that felt that fell in one of these four spheres. But as they're talking, they, they would say, well, I'm not here for that reason. So the person, the, te- the, the lawyer that felt persecuted at work and wanted prayer 
is talking to the person who's seeking meaning in their work and really struggling to, you know, well, we're not here for the same reason. Um, and so to, to be able to work with our leaders very practically, of, you will have people coming to your groups that have a need in each of these areas, and we really would like to ask you to not preference any one of them, but as leaders... Be, don't lead for your own to meet your own needs. Lead to meet this diverse range of needs of uh, the different people that will be coming. So it's been very practical. Um, we always get ethics areas. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the, the two biggies are um, the advertising that I mentioned and should I take my clothes off on stage? Um, you know, it, it's just not a question that I think we can just like you know, get to a really quick answer and, you know, all right, here's the rule book. Um, and it's been fascinating to hear artists talk about that. Um, but from an ethics perspective, also introducing concept of justice and how does, how do the ethics of the entire industry or institution impact our culture and what can you do in your little way to bring more justice or bring more respect of, um, bring more human dignity um, in your profession is expands what could be narrow checking off the, ru- the rules to a, a more deep, life-changing kind of discussion. In the experience area, um, I'm concerned about this. Um, I've just read a book, not a Christian book, called Generation Me, and I'm recommending it to both people in their 20s and people who have raised people in their 20s or have employees that are in their 20s. Um, it's helping me try to understand a, a generation that I don't... Um, it's different enough from mine that um, I have to sort of look underneath the surface a little bit. And one of the biggest concerns this non-Christian book points out is that the young people coming into the workforce, the ones we have at Redeemer, have been encouraged so much their entire life that they really have huge expectations and particularly this sort of I was born to change the world kind of expectation. And their first jobs out of college are not in any way giving them a sense that that's what's going to be happening in the next six months, which seems to be their time frame. (laughs) And I think that all of us in the... um, you know, the 45-plus generation have a huge responsibility to um, teach a a perspective to 20-somethings on how God is preparing them in the small things in their very insignificant job for potentially much bigger things. And if they, in fact, were changing, if they were Bono right now, it, in fact, would not be, they might not be ready for it, Um, that there's a couple decades of experience that might be helpful for them. Um, so I think that area of meaning is um, its such a God-given thing to strive for meaning in our work, and yet it's such a man-given thing to want that meaning to be immediate on our timetable. And it's an area that, that goes deep into what we're trying to wrestle with with our people. Evangelism um, in, in New York City, we, we really would call it the E of expression because out-and-out evangelism is... Um, I don't know, you could run out of town on something. But, um, but in being able to take advantage of the moments that you do get, and I do think, both in California and in New York, I'm interested in how you find it here, um, evangelism is, there's so many different faiths now in the workplace that it is more an a co- easy topic of conversation. Now, nobody 
thinks anyone would ever be persuaded to a different faith, but at least it's an open topic of, you know, where do you get, where do you understand your meaning in life? What's the, what's the higher um, judge of right or wrong in, in your particular faith language? And so helping people be able to respond to the moment in a winsome way is very important. And we try to really um, work with people to not use insider Christian subculture jargon, but really be able to articulate their faith in language that anyone who's never been exposed to it would appreciate and understand. And then certainly in enrichment, um, in California in particular, I'd lost half my company every weekend to the latest meditation weekend retreat or yoga retreat or whatever. We were beaten, beaten hands down by the New Age um, movement and being able to provide spiritual resources for people to better live in their workplace. And um, that seems to be a cry and shame since we've got God and that's sort of bigger than everything else. Um, and, then, and then finally, I, I think that um, sort of the conversation can get old and trite if it's always just about me and my problems in my work, and it very quickly needs to be moving to, so what can I do, or what, even more important, what can I do, what can we as a group do? And um, so I'm starting to see some fun things um, in that area, especially in this entrepreneur area where people are offering their skills in marketing or even web design to help an entrepreneur in a completely different area do something that's innovative and, and in, might, in some way might bring the gospel as a, a little bit more of a light in, in some, some aspect of the city. So I'm going to... I think I've missed my time for my uh, video, so I'm just going to close with, I think some of you at Christ Community Church have um, had a lot of um, Dorothy Sayers, and I I don't know how much you know her about her background, but um, she has an extraordinary essay called Why Work in a little book, published book of her essays um, that was one of the first things I read as as a new Christian out of work, and I've actually given it to people who are exploring the faith, and it, they've come back and told me, even though it's totally a non-evangelical um, article, they've told me it, it was the tipping point for them to cross the line and, and come into faith. Um, but this quote is from that essay, Why Work? And she was writing in 1942 in England, um, a theologian and author of fiction books, Um, but also with a pretty um, strong set of opinions about economics. And it's interesting how um, relevant it might end up being for our current time. Um, What I urged and urge is a thoroughgoing revolution in our whole attitude to work. I ask that it should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. It seems to me that what becomes of civilization after this war, and we can substitute financial demise, um, after this war is going to depend enormously on our being able to affect this revolution in our ideas about work. 
Unless we do change our whole way of thought about work, I do not think we shall ever escape from the appalling squirrel cage of economic confusion in which we have been madly turning for the last three centuries or so, the cage in which we landed ourselves by acquiescing in a social system based upon envy and avarice. And then her theology of work, which you've probably heard before. Work is a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself and that man made in God's image should make things as God makes them for sake of doing well a thing that is worth well doing. Thank you very much. Well, So I think I'll skip the video so we can keep going. Thanks. <laughs>